I've always been highly energetic. So that was the trick. That was the problem. How do I use this high energy without overdoing it, without overplanning, overtraveling, overworking? Because it is a big vessel. It is a capable vessel. That's why I took advantage in a negative way. Hi, I'm Tanya, and this is Human and Holy, a podcast where we discuss spiritual ideas in human terms. Today's episode is sponsored by Rabbi Schneer Zalman and Perla Zaltzman as a gift to their daughter Musya, Alea Shalom, in honor of her 13th birthday on the 4th of Adar. In their words, Musya, we hope your celebration in heaven is even more fun than the one on earth. We celebrate your birthday here with longing and with meaning, sharing Torah and Chassidus with many through this podcast in your honor. We also wish your sister Hannah a happy sixth birthday and your brother Avush a happy fifth birthday and a long, healthy life. To sponsor an episode or become a paying subscriber of the podcast on Patreon, please visit the link in the show notes, patreon.com slash human and holy, or email us at humanandholy at gmail.com. Today, I interview Ruth Devora Wallen, a clinical social worker and a Hasidic woman who is passionate about creating kosher meditations as a tool for calm in a hectic world. She runs a practice called Torah Therapeutics, and I will include more about her work in the show notes. So today, through Ruth Devora's own experience with a stroke and through watching her clients rise from the depths of internal struggle. Ruth Devorah tells us the story of Yerida Litzara Chalia, how the greatest descents in our lives are often a preparation and a catalyst for unparalleled ascent. How can we support ourselves in rising after we have plummeted, whether by choice or by divine circumstance? How can we experience our Yerida as the driving force of our subsequent ascent? My name is Rustavora Wallen. My professional or legal name is Darcy, so some people know me with that name. I'm a licensed clinical social worker. My day job is I speak to people daily as a therapist, trying to help them sort through their lives. A lot of the stuff that's going on now in the world, all of the political and other insanity, so people are really heightened with their anxiety. So I help people settle, get some self-regulation tools, calm themselves down, feel better about their lives, be able to manage in the crazy world that we live in. Nice. How did you get into this work? Okay. So I sometimes jokingly say I'm a social worker. I'm social and I work. Mm. As a child, I was always into people and I was always into helping. And I was naturally, I guess, until... 1989, when I went to social work school, after I'd already had Gilgulim incarnations in my life of being a music educator, 
doing various other things in my life, I decided to go back to social work school at that point because really I was living like a social worker without portfolio. People would come to me for guidance and support. They'd come and ask me to lead them. And people naturally came to me. And I felt that that was an automatic field for me to get involved in. I've heard that from quite a few people that before they became social workers or therapists, they felt like they were social workers or therapists without the, without without the training. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because it's often like a natural instinct that they have to listen, to guide. Okay, so today we're going to speak about Yurida Litzarachalia, this concept of descending in order to ascend. Before we get into your story, I would love if you could just share your understanding of this idea. Okay. So Yurida Zulitzorachalia is a Kabbalistic concept. It's a Hasidic concept. And it's brought up frequently in the literature, certainly of the Chabad Rebbeim. And literally, it means sometimes you need to go down to come up. You need to have a challenging experience to be able to ascend to a higher place. Sometimes people have what's called a metanoia, a life-transforming experience. And that's kind of what happened to me on many levels at many times in my life that would guide me to a new experience or a new choice in life. Four years ago, well, now it's closer to five, five years ago, almost, Shavuos time, I had a stroke. It happened in a very kind of strange way. The weeks preceding it, I kept telling my dear friend, I'm working too hard. I have too many clients. It's too intense. This doesn't feel good. I was just like overdoing it and not sleeping enough and not following my own guidance. I wasn't practicing enough of what I preach. And Shavuos, I woke up in a start. I was supposed to wake up a half hour earlier than I did. And I rushed to get out of the house because I like to listen to the Ten Commandments in the synagogue. And I literally ran, walked to shul, and I listened to the Torah. And then when I was done with whatever prayers I said, I turned around and I came home and I started preparing for that dairy meal. We eat milchiks, we eat dairy, that lunch meal. And I started cutting up the vegetables and stuff, and the coffee that I did not get a chance to drink when I ran out of the house that morning, I put some ice in it and now made it into iced coffee. So now I'm sipping my coffee, and a utensil gets stuck on my sleeve, and I knock over the coffee, the iced coffee, and I see it falling off the counter, going down, ready to go into the dining room where the rug is where I'm going to be serving 15 people in, a, in an hour or so. And I dove down, by the way, after a certain age, I won't say which age it is, don't dive down, okay? <laughs> Go down slowly. So I dove gracefully down. Bend. <laughs> gracefully slowly bend down, take your time. So I grabbed these towels that we just happened to have in the corner when we wash ceremonially for the bread, ritually for the bread. I dove down, and when I came up, my arm was flaccid, and it was weak, and my leg felt weak, and there was no one there to speak with, so I couldn't tell what was going on with my speech, and I said, oh, that's weird. Okay, 
Well, you're left-handed anyway. Keep cutting the cucumber. But I couldn't even hold it on the counter. I said, okay, something just happened. I said to myself, did I have a stroke? Did I have heat stroke? Did I have sunstroke? What happened to me? So I said, you know what? You ran out of the house. You didn't eat. You didn't drink. Go get yourself. My favorite food is my go-to food, especially it's prepared before Yontif is eggs, hard-boiled eggs. So I'm mashing some eggs. I put some salt on it, and I get a bottle of Poland Springs. And I start to say a bracha, and I realize that it's not really coming out right. So I said it as in a whisper. I took a bite, and eggs with salt should be no problem. I'm choking. I can't swallow it. I'm like, what's going on here? Uh-oh. So I take the water to wash it down, and the water is coming out of wow. my mouth. And I said, okay, I had a stroke. Now, you could say, what the heck is wrong with that lady? She said, okay, I had a stroke. Yeah, because I've been practicing my breathing and my meditating and bitachoning, and I'll share a little bit about that later, for a while. And I realized, okay, I'd better face this reality. I might have just had a stroke. The thing that did, as you might say in the American vernacular, freak me out a little bit was when I went to say the after blessing for that egg and water, whatever did get into me, and I couldn't speak. And at that point, immediately, this is maybe part of my chutzpah, my nerve, and part of bitachon. I said, God, you're not taking my voice. That's my vehicle. I teach with it. I sing with it. I talk with it. I do therapy with it. I train with it. No, you're not taking my voice. At this point, now all my friends are coming and my sister's arriving and people are flipping out. They stayed outside because I told you the weather was good. The few people who were inside to help me get myself together helped me. And I went into the ambulance. Anyway, we got to the hospital, and all they needed to do was give this thing, oh my gosh, it's called TPA, I can't even pronounce what it stands for. In 10 minutes, it was over. But I knew I would be stuck having tests and being there for the whole holiday. So I kind of buckled myself up for the ride. Now, some of the things that I utilized that day to keep me calm. And then that night with the noisy neuro ICU, and then the next day, knowing I'm not with my husband and family and religious people and the holidays passing, are things that I have been teaching and that I've been doing for years and years. Clearly not enough. I needed to get back in there. And literally, those 48 hours, I used every tool in the book. I meditated. I hummed, I sang triumphant songs, I davened, I had bitachon, I did visualizations, guided imageries, just to be able to stay present because it's so noisy in these hospitals. The hospital's not a place to get well. And it turned my mind. You know, I, I tell my clients, take a little key. Here, I'm sending you a key. Take this key. And put it in your forehead and turn it and turn your mind, flip it over to another perspective. And only when you're able to be quiet for a while and listen to your inner voice, can you take those keys and turn them. 
And I turned a key and I said, oh my gosh, Hashem, thank you for this body. I don't ever want to assault it again. I don't ever want it to get into that situation again, God forbid. I need to really respect the precious body. And that revelation happened the first morning when I woke up and I said my morning blessings. You know, there's a series of blessings that many religious Jews say upon awakening. And it goes through many different things. But the one that struck me, and I started crying during that blessing, was the Asher Yatsar blessing. That blessing talks about how God formed the human being and how he formed it with wisdom. And there are little vessels. And if they were open when they should be closed or closed when they should be open. And of course, that's exactly what happened with the stroke. Vessels that should have been open were closed. And that hit me so hard. I started crying in the midst of that blessing, almost with an attitude of, God, I'm not going to do that to you again. This is my vehicle. This is the gift that you gave me to be able to do all of the wonderful work that I do in the world. And I need to make sure that it's very precious. And that was the key that was turned, the Yerida Zoo Latora Halia. I fell. My, my life was in jeopardy a day ago. I could have died yesterday. Now, like the Rebbe, the Lubavitcher Rebbe tells us and told us specifically after the passing of his wife, the Rebetzin, Hayamushka, may she rest in peace. He said, Vahachai yitain alibo. Those who are living should take it to heart. They should take this very seriously. That's what I called myself. I was the living. I need to take it to heart. I could have been on the other side of the equation altogether. And so I had tremendous gratitude. As a matter of fact, over the last couple of years, I've written a few songs about how grateful I am to be alive and how fortunate I have a song. I can't sing it here for many reasons, but I have a, a song about the stroke of good fortune. I call it, I want to thank you for this love and life. Nice. And so everything became brighter and louder mm. and clearer. And the first bike ride I took with my husband, the sky was bluer, the trees were greener, the grass was greener, really. And I'm trying to keep that energetic approach, that kavana, that intention through my life, that every day it might be hard to remember to take supplements and to meditate and to breathe and to do this and to do that, but I've got to. It's, mm. it's, it's my new mission. I mean, I please God, in June, I'm turning 63, and I feel better than I did when I was 25. Wow. Literally, no joke. I'm at my college weight right now. It's like the incredible descent, that brush with death. Yes. Just allowed you to really see the preciousness of your life to the preciousness of your body. I love how you said that you recognized then how precious your vessel was and how you had to care for it. So that awakening of like, oh my goodness, all of this could have been gone in a moment reminds you how you have the responsibility to care for it so that you could live this beautiful life. Absolutely. You said a brush with death. I've always been a risk taker. So I realized, stop it. Stop it. Stop thinking that mm. God is going to get you through this one. I was always like a wild kid in high school. That's how I got into the meditation stuff 
altogether in the first place. You use the word vessel. I don't even know if I said that. But in that song that I told you about, the last verse says, by caring for this vessel, my tool I can use best. It has more fuel to energize and care for all the rest. Gratitude is all I have for all you've given me. I want to thank you for this love and life that you have gifted me. Beautiful. I want to thank you for this second life that you have granted me. And I really believe that. I Can really you sing believe it Yeah, Kalisha Warning? What do you think? No, I'm not going to do that. But if people want it, I have a little recording. It's just a rough recording of it. They can request it of you and you can send it individually to women. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Afterwards, I'll get it to you. Okay. It, is, it is a fun song. It's kind of like a, a country Western kind of folk song. Yeah. I love how you said that at the end. Thank you for the second life, which you have granted me. I really believe it. I really believe it. You know, my friends look at me, I mean, between COVID and not seeing people for two years, when they've seen me, they're like, whoa, you know, some people haven't seen me in five years. That was before the stroke. And they're like, I'm half the man I used to be. <laughs> yeah. And you got like a new shot of life and yes, like wonder and love. Yes. You know what? But I've always been highly energetic. So that was the trick. That was the problem. How do I use this high energy without overdoing it without wow. over-planning, over over-traveling, overworking, staying up too late, even if it's recreationally, tone it down because it is a big vessel. It is a capable vessel. That's why I took advantage in a mm. negative way. And now I really want to take advantage in the most positive way, which I believe uh, I am. I really believe I am. I feel very blessed. And you know what? It's affected a little bit of everything in my life. I think about things more deeply. I'm more grateful to Hashem and to my friends. And I, I hope I'm appreciative of my friends. If any of my friends is listening to this, let me know if I'm not appreciative enough of you. And I think my prayer, I don't do a lot of it. God knows I'm. we're good friends on many levels, but I'm not one of the biggest daveners, prayers. And I've taken it more intentionally and slower and more in a meditative way, more in a way of really listening to what I'm saying, what I'm doing to connect with Hashem. So everything kind of got into focus. <laughs> share any example of a client that has experienced this Yurida Zulitzar this descent for the sake of ascent, and what that looked like and how you were able to possibly guide them through it and what the process was. Okay. So 
There are many such examples. And for the sake of anonymity and protecting the confidentiality of my clients, what I will do is I will morph a couple stories, kind of details together. There won't be any names, okay? But they've all existed. So I'm going to put kind of like two stories together in one. Okay. So I had a woman who had what's called a postpartum psychotic episode. Postpartum psychosis is really serious. It's way more serious than postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety, postpartum bipolar. This is where the person is delusional and really not present, not really trusting, maybe a little paranoid. And the Rav from her community called me and said, you need to speak to this woman. You need to help her. I said, she's not going to call me. Get her husband to call me. The husband calls frantically. You got to help my wife. She's going it on. She's firing her doctors and she's blah, 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 blah. Like she's yelling at us and she's yelling at the children and we just had a baby. And blah, 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 blah. I said, you need to be as calm as possible to deal with her. Should I take her and the, should I take the kids and the babies and leave the house? No, stay with her, but you need to be present. So he was in really bad shape. He had called his Rav. What do I do? The Rav called me. I said to the Rav, it's not going to work unless he calms himself down. It's not a matter yet of the woman. Now, what I've seen now, it's over 30 years in practice. What I've seen is when one spouse takes care of him or herself, the other one wants a little piece of the action. They get a little jealous. So this guy, basically, I taught him some self-regulation. I taught him my meditation. I taught him what I call my breathing contest. I can share it with the audience in a few moments. I can share the actual techniques if you'll allow me to do them in vivo yeah. right here. So this guy not only took my guidance seriously. Like he was really into it. So that meditation that I said, do it at least once a day, preferably in the morning. So he did it in the morning before she yelled at him. Mm. He did it after she yelled at him again before he went to work. He did it when he sat in the driveway before dinner. Wow. He did it then after she yelled at him again and, and was out of control. Wow. A after Several weeks, he was really toned down, and he was responding to her in a different way. Now, there's a controversy scientifically, neuroscientifically, if there's a thing called mirror neurons, but we know from the Torah, kamayim panim el panim, kain leva adam el adam. Just like face is reflected in water back to back, face to face, similarly, the hearts of a person are reflected. So as he toned down, she toned down. As he toned down, she started getting envious, jealous. And she asked him, what are you smoking? I want some. And he said, I'm not smoking anything. I'm doing a meditation. And she said, give it to me. And then he's texting me frantically. What do I do? I said, what? This is the moment we've been waiting for. Give it to her. So she started doing it. Then she wanted my number and my name. And then she started coming then she started calming down. She was back to her old self. We did other things. It's not just these two elements. We spoke as well. She was in a traumatic situation. She had 
a post-traumatic disorder with her birth. Unbeknownst to me until we had sessions, she had had a very horrible episode as a young woman. She was attacked. So this brought it up in the birth experience. So she was traumatized. So we did trauma work, but mainly it was my breathing technique that I'll teach your audience and the meditation that she said really helped her stay present and bolstered and calm. And then the couple came together at that hour. It was in the evening. They were on the West Coast somewhere. And they did really well. Of course, she had to reconcile what she had done to her poor husband. And the interesting phenomenon in this story is very often other things get improved while people are... So a lot of your redos get elevated. So he did well. She did well. The children did better. But another crazy thing, the man had a particular syndrome called Tourette's. And the Tourette's syndrome causes a person to have vocal tics, movement tics. As he was learning the meditation, those were getting better. Prior, when she was freaking out on him, they were getting worse. Right. So as he calmed his nervous system and his body and his neshama, which I call the three-legged stool, he was able to heal himself of that other thing. So that's one little story. I mean, it's a big story, but I've seen this many times with my clients. The body, mind, and neshama, the soul, are intertwined. You can't separate them. So what goes on in the mind affects the body. What goes on in the body affects the mind and the, the soul. If I'm upset about something, then it's going to make my heart pound, my body stiffen up, sensations occur in my body, butterflies or whatever. And then guess what? Then I stop thinking that God has my back. Maybe Hashem's not really there. And then so each of the, what I call legs of the stool, fall down. Doesn't nice. matter which leg you enter with, right? You need a minimum of three legs to sustain a stool to keep it stabilized. Nice. So if one leg falls, they all go. If my mind goes and I think think drastic thoughts, then my body starts doing its thing. My neshama forgets that God is right here with you. And it goes the other way around. If a person has, let's say, some devastating spiritual crisis, so then, of course, they're feeling bad, and then they're thinking bad thoughts, and then their body gets affected. It gets dragged into it. Yeah. And like also in the positive direction, when you change one thing for the better, like you said, the meditation, then everything in your life shifts. There's no way to make a single change without shifting everything. So positive or negative. I love that. Yeah. I love how you said that about the postpartum psychosis, that 
so much shifted when the husband reached out for help and not only the things that were directly connected to why they came to you. So sometimes reaching that low place, though it feels so painful at the time, could be the biggest gift in just shifting everything. Exactly. Exactly. I'll just share another little vignette about my own Yurita Zulitzor Halia. So about 15 years ago, my mother was very frail. May she rest in peace now. But at that point, she was very frail. My father was weakening as well. They live in Buffalo, New York. And I lived in Crown Heights for about 30 years on and off. And I never really wanted to leave. Everything was there. My Torah classes, my social life, my practice, my therapy practice, I, from New York, because I love to teach and speak, I would go to different emissaries, shluchim around the world. And New York, it's an easy place to leave from, right? right? I mean, maybe not during COVID, but before the COVIDian era, New York was like the ideal place to live for the things that I wanted. As an observant Jew, Buffalo is not the center of Jewish learning and scholarship. So what ended up happening was we decided that we're going to come home. We got blessings from our rabbi and such. And we came to Buffalo, but I had to get rid of my practice. The packing and the unpacking, I came here to take care of my mother. She was not doing well. I had siblings also. My sister's also very responsible and helpful. But we shared the burden. And it wasn't really a burden. It was an honor to help my mother at the time. But I wasn't filling my own cup. I wasn't doing the shlichus. I couldn't travel. Besides the fact that it's hard to leave from Buffalo, right? You got to take a couple planes to get anywhere decent. But either way, I was busy with that. I didn't want to pick up and leave. So I missed my shlichus, my traveling for the shluchim. I missed my practice. I was developing it one client at a time. And I was afraid to develop it much because I didn't know when I'd be on call. I didn't have my friends. I didn't have my shiurim. Kosher food is a pain here to acquire, especially if you're a foodie and you like good food. No restaurants here. So the whole thing, the friendships and everything, it was really heavy. It's not a confession. I'm going to say outright in front of the whole audience that I had what's called a situational depression. I could diagnose myself. I knew I was depressed. I'm licensed in New York to die. <laughs> and here you were in Buffalo, so that's in New York. Exactly. Yeah. I, I, I was permitted. Yeah. And, and lo and behold, I was stuck. And you'll think it's crazy, but whenever I've had anything, I try to identify with my clients in whatever subtle way. And I said to myself, wow you really need to appreciate how hard it is for your clients to get out of that pit. So depression is very different from anxiety. It's the opposite energy. So anxiety is high energy. It's too intense. Depression is a very deep, low energy. So there may be opposite ends of the spectrum, depending on how intense the anxiety or the depression is. But depression, I'll tell you, any day, I would rather work with an anxiety-ridden client than a depressed one, because it's really hard to get them up. And one day, while I was in this little 
situational depression. My husband says to me, you want to take a bike ride? And I said, no, I'm not in the mood. And I said, what? You said that? Not to him. I said that to myself. You said that? Get off of the couch. Go get your helmet and your riding skirt and sneakers and get on the bike. I mean, you tell this to your clients. How dare you not follow your own instruction? So I did that. And I got on the bike. And it was a nice spring day. And do you think for a moment, Tanya, I said, Oh, man, I wish I were moping on the couch. <laughs> no. Man, I really wish I were moping. No, right. <laughs> not, not for a split second. What happened was everything turned. So what you're talking about is really potent. Mm. Sometimes it's just one step. Yeah. Hey, take that key, right? All you may need to do is turn it one crank. It may not need to go all the way to the other end. It may not need to be a 180, Let's take one degree. Let's take nice. two, two degrees of growth. So what I did at that moment, I said, okay, this is a claw. This is a general rule. And I created a caveat. And the caveat goes like this. And my clients who are stuck in the pits know the caveat. It goes like this. It's not the motivation that gets you moving. It's the moving that gets you motivated. Oh, that's so good. All you need to do is take that first step that you're talking about. Wow. Right? And the Rambam teaches it. The Torah knew this forever. Let's go to the Mishnah. Mitzvah, Guerreras, Mitzvah. Avera, Guerreras, Avera. Now you could say, well, maybe I'm not doing a Mitzvah or an Avera, but something in the good direction mm. gets a trail, a train of good deeds. And something in the negative direction, it attracts, it's magnetic. It magnetizes you. So the more you sit, the more you're going to want to sit, right? The People say, I'm lazy. Don't call yourself lazy. I call that a four-letter swear word. Right? <laughs> All you need to do is put one foot down and go. Nice. Just get off the couch and get on the bike. And once you're on the bike, you're like, I can't believe I didn't want to get on the bike. Yeah. So it's not the motivation that gets you moving. It's the moving that gets you motivated. And that's great. I, I, and that is really the basis of your Rita Zulitz or Halia. Until you've got a recognition that you fell, mm. how are you going to come back up? You don't, yeah. you don't have any reason to do so. That's such a good point. Like I know a personal example with my phone is that I have to have crossed the boundary of how long I want to spend on my phone to the point that I really don't feel good. I got order, sick from it. I hurt myself in it. In order to be like, wow, I failed. And only then can I make real changes as opposed to like, eh, whatever, I should spend less time on my phone, you know? Well, but it's like, if don't it's go a, there too often, Tanya. Don't go there too often. No, no, no. <laughs> I actually have real intense time restrictions on my phone, really strong boundaries. But it did take one evening of just spending so much time that I just felt nauseous and sick. And, and it does have physiological effects on us. I like that idea that you have to have the recognition that you failed in order to really take a hard look in the mirror and say, what am I going to change to make the situation consistently better? Not just like a little better tomorrow, because I think sometimes what happens is, is that the next day, you do better. And then the next day you fall again. But if you're able to recognize the failure, then you can 
ascend from exactly, there. Exactly, exactly. And we we see that throughout the Torah, throughout Hasidus, right? We see the Rebbe on Tess Zion Sivan, the 16th of Sivan in Hayomyom, in the Daily Diary, where he's got interesting insights and thoughts, Torah thoughts. He says, for a person to heal of an illness, they first need to recognize that it's there, right? Mm-hmm. You can't turn around if you don't recognize that it's there. I would love if you could share the meditation that you mentioned you would do with us. I feel sure. like that is the the practical takeaway that I want to take. I want to end off with this meditation so that we could close with your words um, with that meditation that basically is going to help Sure, us of place. course. What I'd like to do is do a quick reiteration of the three-legged stool. And that's really the whole package. So, We said the holistic approach is mind, body, and soul. Even though I go to courses at Harvard that are called mind-body medicine, Mm. they talk about the soul. They help you understand that if you ignore that, it affects your health and well-being. So in the three-legged stool, the spiritual leg of the stool is bitachon, trusting that God has your back because then you're not going to be anxious and then your body's not going to be affected and your mind's not going to be affected. I trust that God has me on this path. So I tell people, this is, let's say the simplest way to do the three-legged stool, do it all in bed. So right before bed, read one of these letters or anything about trusting in God or anything that's spiritually inspiring to you that you trust. Then After whatever you do, a lot of your audience probably says Shema and does some little religious stuff. But whatever you do, you do your PJs, you do your supplements, you do whatever, the turning out the lights and everything. After the Shema, at the very end, when you're about to fall asleep, then we do the thing for the body, to relax the body, to ease it into sleep mode. So the Neshama, the soul, is being bathed in what I call a calm bomb. So emotionally and spiritually and feelings-wise, you're able to approach sleep in a more relaxed way. Then at the end of your preparations, the breathing contest, I call it, is done where you breathe in through the nose and then out through a very small stream of air and then start developing a pattern and see if you can lengthen the exhale longer. So let's say you count three in and then blow out four out. So that is the breathing contest where you do a little bit less on the inhale than the exhale. So here's a general rule for your audience. Relaxation of the body can be found in the exhale. The longer you exhale, 
the more relaxed the body becomes. So you're having a contest with yourself every night. So tonight I could do three and four. I'll remember that. Maybe tomorrow I could do three and five. Three and six. Oh, that's getting a little hard. Maybe I could do four. Breathe in another second to get more out. Four and six, four and seven. And each night you compete with yourself with this breathing contest. The most basic premise of that I call basic breathing for beginners. Even if you're 30 years old, you're still a beginner. Because by age eight, we've watched people (gasps) breathing in incorrect ways. We've seen people, mommies and women, pull in their tummies. So they're not allowing the diaphragm to do its Um. work. And daddies to stand with a rigid big chest to show their macho kite. So we're not watching people breathing diaphragmatically since we're like eight years old. We change our own breathing. So basic breathing for beginners is always breathe in through your nose. Train yourself to do so. And you can exhale however you want, but slow down the exhale. How do we know you breathe in through the nose? Because that's the organ of breathing that God gave us right from Beratius, from Genesis. Because it says, that God breathed into his nose. So inhalation is always through the nose. Now, the third, and last but not least, is the meditation. So we did the bitachon before bed. We did the slow breathing at the end of our day, at the very end before we fall asleep. The counting, by the way, functions as a distraction. So I can't worry about tomorrow or think about what didn't go well today because mm-hmm. I'm counting. And that's the last thing I'm doing. Nice. And then in the morning, as early as is possible that fits in your day, do the meditation while your brain is still intact, <laughs> right? Do it when you're fresh. Okay. So the first thing you do in the morning would be the meditation. If you can do it right then and there, (laughs) you like the name. It's called a meditation. If you do it a little bit later, that's fine. Do it as a meditation before your day gets too hectic, because later on you won't have the capacity or the inclination or the ability. Okay, so here y'all go. I'm going to do, let's say, a three-minute sample just to give the audience a flavor of how this is. And Should I close my eyes? You're welcome to. I'll give you those instructions. Oh, once okay. I do. So the basic premise of the meditation, really, we said it's for the mind. So we soothed the neshama. We relaxed and calmed the body. Now what we want to do is settle the mind. We're not trying to get everything out of the mind. We're not trying to blank out the mind and empty the mind. What we want to do is for it to settle, Mm. to become the chooser of where our thoughts go. So in the meditation, I'm going to say, you're going to focus on your breath and its sensations. And your mind's going to wander because that's what minds do. Just bring your attention back. So you become the chooser of where your mind goes in this exercise. Okay, so if you're willing, close your eyes and start paying attention to your breathing. It can be 
anything to do with your breath. So for instance, you may start noticing whether you're breathing through your nose or mouth, that as you inhale, the air has been cooled. And then when you breathe out and exhale, the air is warmed by your body. Just notice that phenomenon. Maybe you'll also begin to notice that as you inhale, your chest or tummy expand. And then when you exhale, it contracts. Just notice. Thoughts will come and go and that's okay. Just once you're aware, bring your attention back to your breathing and its sensations. And come back to your breath. Back to your breathing. Thoughts may come and go, and that's okay, because the nature of the mind is to think thoughts. Once you're aware you're thinking extraneous thoughts, gently and non-judgmentally return your attention back to your breathing and come back to your breath. Back to your breath. Thoughts can easily be dismissed as if they were clouds passing in the sky. Just let them go and come back to your breath. Or you can imagine them like a leaf floating down the stream. Just let it go and bring your attention back to your breathing. and come back to your breath. Back to your breath. Now in the interest of time, this has been abbreviated, but commend yourself for taking this time. And when I count to three, we'll open our eyes. One, two, Three. And there you have it. How was that for you, Tanya? Mm, so good. Yeah. I'm like still waking up from it. Oh, all right. This wasn't the relaxation. You maybe may, I'm 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 playing with you. It wasn't the relaxation. Don't go to sleep. You gotta cook. It's a Friday. You got a lot of preparations to do yet. No, I wasn't napping. I felt like I was exercising, which is interesting. That's exactly what it should be like, because the returning to the breath is not easy necessarily, especially when there are extraneous sounds and noises, right? And there are things going on in our environment. Maybe you're smelling the smell, the wafting of chicken soup from your kitchen and can't wait to taste it. Don't want to get flashic now. I'm going for my coffee soon, but... The wandering of the mind is natural, and that's the default mode, and it's supposed to do that. The training here is to bring yourself back. Imagine, Tanya, the effect of repeatedly doing this 
on the person who's got anxious thoughts or depressive thoughts or the person who always gets gravitated to feelings that are really not good for them. The interruption and the choosing is really, really potent. And people say, oh, I tried to do it when I was upset. It didn't work. No, you don't wait. That's why you do it come hell or high water. And that's why I say, do it in bed. Stop saying you don't have time during the day. So do it, the bitachon, the relaxed breathing, and the meditation. Do it. Be done with it. So now you can get the freebies, the benefits that come from it because you've been practicing. Oh, nice. You can access it during the day. You access it when you need it. So when I said back to breath to myself many times, I could say, wait a second, back to that task, get off of YouTube, get off of Instagram. It's not good. It's blowing my day. And you've got the willpower then. You know, imagine a person playing scales in a practice room. She's going to play Mozart. He's going to play Mozart on stage. So someone comes into his practice room and he's going, and it doesn't sound very musical. And a guy comes in and says, you're going out there to play Mozart. It doesn't sound like music. He says, no, 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 you don't understand. As I do this, I'm practicing moving my fingers over the keys so that when I do it out there on stage, it's flawless. Think about this as a practice. You said this was exercise. It's exactly what it is. Each time I come back to my breath, I'm flexing a mental muscle. It's not really a muscle, but it's flexing it. If I'm always off the breath or I'm always on the breath, I'm not doing the work. The mind needs to wander. That's another Yerida Zulitzor Chalia. Nice. If it doesn't go away, I can't bring it back. It felt like holding a plank. That's how I felt. It is. It is. It's not easy. So when people say, it didn't relax me, it's not meant to relax. That's why I was joking before. It's not meant to relax. It's meant to make us alert. It's meant to train us in focus, to be the chooser. This is the ultimate, what we call in Hasidic philosophy and Chabad philosophy, it's the ultimate Chabad brain. Moach intellect that has the capacity to shalit, to lead the heart and the feelings and the body. So there you have it. The three-legged stool. All right. Thank you so much. That You're was so welcome. Really, really helpful information. And I think I'm going to utilize that today. Wonderful. We have a Friday ahead of us. All right, Tanya. So nice to meet you. Thank you for the honor of being on your famous podcast. I've heard about it from clients. I've heard about it from friends. As a matter of fact, I've got clients because of your podcast, because of that famous interview you did with Razel Deitch, who, who was very, very open and said she came to me and learned these tools. So God bless you and the work that you're doing with your podcast. People should come close to the Tanya, come close to Hasidic philosophy, come close to living lives that are full and happy and healthy and holy. Amen. Thank you so much. When one thing shifts in our lives, the entire story rearranges itself. Often, what seems like the deepest descent is really just a preparation for a greater story to emerge. A woman experiences postpartum psychosis, 
only one thing shifts. Her husband learns tools to stay regulated. And then the entire story changes. She seeks help. Her trauma rises to the surface. His Tourette's begin to calm down. It's not a story of magic. It's a story of movement. After years of overwork and unhealthy habits, Ruth Stavora experiences a stroke on the holy day of Shavuos. She briefly loses the health she had always known. The entire story changes. With renewed gratitude and self-awareness, she begins to shift the way she cares for her soul's vessel. She says that her entire life changed. And you can hear This is not a story of magic. It's a story of movement. Where are you experiencing this descent in your life? It doesn't have to be a stroke or postpartum psychosis, though it can be and it might. But do you feel stuck in any way in a low and narrow place? It could be too much time on your phone. It could be a friendship disintegrating before your eyes. It could be an internal battle of self-worth. See what would happen if you allowed that descent to push you towards a tiny shift. What would happen if you recognize that the feeling of stuckness is signaling that it's time to move, to take that one step, and then you will watch how so much in your life begins to rearrange itself to accommodate that one minuscule ascent. When you feel yourself glued to the couch, but then you push yourself out the door and onto the bike, that descent, that sluggishness, that stuckness becomes the catalyst for a tiny ascent, taking a bike ride, even though you don't feel like it. And then that snowballs and catapults you further into the most elevated parts of yourself and your life. Yurida Litzara Often, in life, we experience a descent for the sake of ascent, if we make it so. Elokai zakinina betoratcha uvimitzotecha Lichaberet nishmati Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, you can find me on Instagram at humanandholy or via email at humanandholy at gmail.com. New episodes of the podcast come out every single Sunday morning. If you don't want to miss a single episode, then hit the subscribe button. If you enjoyed today's episode and could take a quick second to leave a rating or review, it means a lot to me and it helps other people find the podcast. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you have a wonderful day.